Welcome to Scope It Out. In this edition, Dr. Smith talks to David Kennedy, Editor-in-Chief of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, about the history of the journal, of the specialty, and of their future. This episode of Scope It Out is made possible by support from Fiagon ENT Navigation. The new Fiagon Cube 4D provides easy-to-use navigation in a compact yet highly robust system. A new groundbreaking feature includes a touchless registration technique that utilizes point cloud technology to capture the entire surface of the patient's face during the registration process. With one click of a button, you can achieve superior registration registration accuracy all in under 20 seconds. Please visit www.fiagon.com to find out more about the new Cube 4D system and the latest groundbreaking navigation technology from Fiagon. Hello and welcome to Scope It Out, podcast of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Smith, and today I'm very honored to be joined by our editor-in-chief, David Kennedy from Pennsylvania. We're going to be discussing, well, several things, of course, related to the journal, the history of the journal, but also I want to dig back with David a bit further to the origins of our subspecialty of rhinology, where he did a lot of amazing pioneering work, and and I'd like to talk to him about that a little bit as well. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Well, here we are, the 10th year anniversary of IFAR, and you are the founding editor, of course, of of that journal, and your term will end here, I guess, in a couple of months, David. Correct. That's it. With mixed feelings. I bet you do. Because, uh, I mean, for a number of reasons, but I I was thinking about it. Uh, Prior to IFAR, you were the editor of our specialties journal for a couple of decades. So if my math's correct, you've been the editor of our specialties journal for on the order of 30 years, which is, at least in in this era, that's really unprecedented and, and demonstrates, I think, your impact on this specialty over three decades. And if I can take it back one step further, if we go back 35 years, around 35 years it seems, we get to the origins of the subspecialty of rhinology. And I wondered if you could just talk to us a little bit about how that began. I know you were at Johns Hopkins, you were a maybe a junior faculty member, I believe you were an otologist, and suddenly you're in Graz, Austria, <laughs> looking into this this potential, you know, new technology. Tell, tell us about the origins, David. So, at Hopkins at that point in time, I was, as you said, an otologist. And so, because I was doing a lot of lateral skull base with the neurosurgeons, out of convenience, they would call me in for the transphenoidals. And I um, was able to publish our series from there uh, as the Johns Hopkins experience, actually going all the way back to Cushing, which was sort of fun. And, yeah, and so we had some nice illustrations, and I published that. And then they wanted me to actually present it at a meeting in Europe that was in Dubrovnik. 
So I was a little reluctant because it was primarily a sinus meeting. Yeah. But when I met, went there, I met Messerklinger, and he was starting to do some surgical procedures endoscopically. It sounded exciting, so as soon as I got back, I contacted Carl Stortz. They, I sort of worked with them to put together some instrument sets, and uh, and it sort of took off from there. And I, I think I realized early on that it it had definitely the potential to become a significant subspecialty within otolaryngology. So we actually started the first fellowship back in 1988 and had our first fellow at Hopkins. And, and it's grown there. I don't know how many fellowships there are now. You probably know that. Uh, on the on the order of between 25 and 30, because some of them take a couple of fellows per year, but uh, on that order. So it's grown dramatically over over time, of course. Yeah. So then I went back and I visited some of the different centers in Germany and Austria where they were actually uh, starting to do some surgery. People like Wiegand and a surgeon in Augsburg called Baum, hmm. who subsequently died prematurely, and of course Wolfgang Graf, and, and saw what they were doing, and, and that was what enabled us to put it together. But it had to be modified very significantly because, of course, Messerklinger was doing his post-op debridements without any anesthesia with a very large aid holding the patient still <laughs> and uh, and keeping the patients in the hospital for a week and doing it on a daily basis and so on. So, And the other thing was we had to actually prove through research that middle myelantrostomy would work, that the approach would work, and that took a little bit of doing as well. Of course. And you took... You took your fair sh I mean, you, you were visionary in that you saw the place, you saw the role for this technology, and at the same time, you took quite a lot of heat within our own uh, specialty of otolaryngology, head neck surgery. I, I believe I read a editorial at one point that described you as a nasal astronomer uh, <laughs> placing scopes into the nose, into the space of the nose and searching for a variety of anatomic elements that no one had really studied or heard of before. Yeah, we actually had quite a bit of fun following that. So someone put together some nasal astronomy certificates, which I still have, and we have some with astronomers' hats, some pictures with Heinz and myself wearing astronomers' hats, and that sort of thing. But it did. There was there were times that it was actually very difficult, and I think there are some lessons to be learnt for anyone trying to innovate new technology. And that probably the most important is really to prove that it works. And, and we use the rabbits to, to do the, the basic science to prove that the approach would work, which was counter to what Hilding had previously published and, and a number of other people. I see. Fascinating, fascinating. So then fast forward a few years from there and you became the editor of what was then called the American Journal of Rhinology. Yes. So it was put together at that point in time by Oceanside Publishing, and that was a, a company that was owned by uh, Guy Setipane, who was an allergist and a very well-respected allergist. And he'd put together what was at that point a fairly struggling journal, and the first editor was actually Larry Dubastein. 
and it was having some difficulty, I think, getting papers and so on. And and so Guy asked me if I would take over as co-editor along with Analogist. And we worked together as co-editor for a while, and then eventually the vast majority of the papers were coming from Rhinology. So it became obvious that it was better just to have a uh, an otolaryngologic editor-in-chief. And so that was so, starting in 1991. But, 91. you know, back then, it's worth thinking what it was like publishing back then. So you have to remember, <laughs> yeah. all the papers came in by mail. Right. Some of them, although we had computers and word processors back then, a number of them, of course, were typed. And if they needed editing, had to be retyped. And then we had to send them out to the reviewers by mail and yeah, get all, them back. All and get via the reviews. mail mail. Back again by snail mail, and as a result, there were certainly months that we were concerned would we actually have enough articles to fill the journal, and that was it was always quite a balancing act. I bet. It's hard to imagine. I mean, it's hard to imagine how long it would have taken science to actually reach the audience for which it was intended, just given all of the barriers in place. Uh, fascinating, fascinating. So, Tim, imagine what would happen if a reviewer didn't respond or was very late in that situation. Right. By the time you'd actually gotten the article back and sent it to someone else, it really did become quite a difficult situation. Yeah. Was it unusual to have an article go, you know, a year in the peer review process, editing process, before it got actually published? I don't think it was ever that long. Okay. But it was variable and could be obviously quite difficult. So the variabilities in the uh, post from overseas for the international authors, it was not easy. And it was also a lot of secretarial work, needless to say, mm. sending out the articles and the cover notes and so on and so forth. Right. And then about 10 years ago, a little over 10 years ago, a group from the American Rhinologic Society got together with a group from the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy, and they formed an LLC. A lot of a lot of folks in our specialties don't really understand the relationship and how that developed. Can you dig into that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so the the societies realized that they were losing their intellectual property by having it published in a journal that was independent. And that was really a shame. And so the thinking was, it would be great if we actually had the rights to those articles. The group got together and they realized that we were losing intellectual property by having it going to a, an independent publishing organization. And it would be nice if we had our own journal. Yeah. And the initial thought was that it would be nice to just buy the American Journal of Rhinology and Allergy, as it was at that point in time. Unfortunately, Guy Setepane had passed away at that point, and the journal was now owned by the Setepane family, who were not involved in the science of this at all, but really more interested, I think, in the financial aspects of, of publishing. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. As a result, it was impossible to organize a deal. So they then decided that it would be good to set up a a different journal, and that's exactly what happened. And so, just for the listeners, the this it's known as the IFAR LLC, and it is a group of leaders, three from the American Rhinologic Society and three from the American Academy of Otolaryngic Allergy. Those six representatives sort of run the the business side of the journal, and you and I in the future here will kind of serve at their pleasure. Exactly, yep. And so tell us about when this journal started a decade ago, we had no impact factor because it takes at least a couple of years of publishing before you can have the metrics in place for which you can develop an impact factor. So how difficult was it to get publications early on, to get manuscripts uh, uh, submitted to the journal early on? So with the society's backing, it actually wasn't too difficult. Mm -hmm. And the ease of getting listed in Medline had changed dramatically since we first started with AJRA or as it was the American Journal of Rhinology back then. In the 1990s, when we tried to get Medline listed for that journal, it was almost impossible. In fact, there was a class action suit from, I think, 20-some journals against the fact that they were not being able to be listed in Medline. I think probably actually one of the best things that I did was to get that journal listed quickly. And I'm not quite sure how that happened. That enabled that journal to get an impact factor because you have to be Medline listed first. I think I was helped out by some of my patients with contacts. And it actually happened very easily in the face of this uh, significant class action suit. But we got that done. I think for IFAR, it was not as difficult. I mean, getting Medline listed was was routine. And with the backing of the societies, we were able to get the articles fairly easily. And I think the backing of the societies was extremely important in terms of helping to funnel the papers into the journal. Yeah, I remember at that time, of course, I was publishing in this realm and it was always, you always had a, a little bit of a mixed feeling submitting to IFAR because you're thinking, oh gosh, is this going to be seen? Is this work going to be seen? And it's not associated with an impact factor. So it was a bit of a leap of faith for the authors. But I agree with you. People really in our specialty really rose to the occasion and supported the journal. And off it went, developed a pretty substantial impact factor relatively quickly, honestly. It was right in the top 10 journals within otolaryngology pretty quickly, as I recall. It actually moved ahead very rapidly, which was nice. But remember, for the first year, we were an online journal only. Right. Um, So that was, I think, probably when it was most difficult in terms of authors trying to decide whether or not to risk putting their papers into the journal or not. Over time, of course, you've seen the critical aspects of creating a excellent scholarly journal. And maybe you could discuss with us what are what are some of the critical pieces that have to fall into place 
to make a journal like this work and get better with time, continue to grow and get better with time? I think the first thing was just thinking about the vision. So that was in terms of choosing a name for the journal. I really wanted to bring forward the idea of it not just being a journal, but also becoming over time more of an interactive forum, recognizing that things are going to continue to move into electronic format, and hopefully that there would be real-time discussion over time, the interactive learning case presentations that we have, the podcasts and the other media that are really important. I think that that still is an area that we can continue to develop over time. It's going to be important, but that's why we picked the name International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, to give the idea that this is not just a journal but that we want it to have significant other discussion aspects involved with it and truly make it an international forum. In terms of moving the journal forwards, you know, I think it's the primary responsibility there lies with the reviewers, and they have done a great job and been very supportive over the years. Those are the people who make the journal a success or a failure and decide what the future impact factor is going to be mm-hmm. because if the articles are not well selected then the journal can't do well well and i've noticed having been associate editor for a couple of journals i've really noticed that getting reviewers for manuscripts that are submitted to ifar is a relatively easy process in the sense that those folks in our specialty are very interested. There's a, there's a large cadre of folks who are willing to do these reviews, which can take a lot of time and, and energy away from other aspects. It's kind of unheralded work, you know? It is. But now the fact that they do get some recognition for this, I think is important. And I'm hopeful that over time, that recognition will become more important in terms of academic promotion, because they the reviewers are scored based upon the quality of the review. And as you know, there is nothing worse than a poor review. A two-line review is much worse than no review at all, because it takes time If someone can't take the time to do a good review, then they really shouldn't accept it. And the average time to do a good review for a journal has been shown to be about five hours. And that should include, of course, doing a relevant literature review, identifying the key aspects of the paper, particularly identifying the methodology and making sure that's truly sound, as well as the conclusions and then critiquing the paper in more detail. A short review works if it's a paper that is clearly not worthy of publication. A short review is terrible on a paper which might indeed need to be published. Nothing worse from an associate editor or an editor's standpoint for a reviewer to be very, very late 
and come in with a very poor review as well. That's kind of the double whammy that throws everything off track. Absolutely. That's really the worst thing. So reviewers, I'm sure, or folks, I'm sure, contact you all the time about getting involved with IFAR, becoming a reviewer for IFAR. How can they go about that? I think it's important to do that. I think it's important to contact the editor-in-chief, which will be you, particularly the younger people, and it can be fellows as well as anyone who's out in practice, to contact and say they're interested in reviewing and what their areas of interest are. They need to recognize that if they're going to do it, they need to do good reviews. I think they also need to recognize that it's important to also contact an associate editor who is in their field of interest, someone that they know and also who is likely to be reviewing papers in their field of interest. As you know, we sort of divide up who the associate editors are in terms of what papers they get, what types of papers they get, uh, make sure that they are in their field of interest. So the person who is interested in doing reviews needs to also contact one of the associate editors and say, the editor-in-chief has said that I would be suitable. I am working in these fields. I would be grateful if you would send me some papers because it's the associate editors that actually assign the papers and delineate what areas they are interested in in doing yeah. the reviews for. That's yeah. really important. It's an important workflow for folks to understand that you as the editor-in-chief typically assign the manuscripts to an associate editor, and the associate editor then assigns the manuscript to reviewers to look at. So the way you really become a reviewer is to contact an associate editor and say, hey, I'm really interested in reviewing in this field. That's probably Step one and step two is to accept and do an excellent review when you're asked. That's absolutely right. And it looks as though moving forward, Wiley will be able to give CME credits for the reviews as well. So that's very exciting. Yes, I think that's just in the offing here and in the very near future that's going to start as well. So there's the credit on Publons, which allows hopefully some credit for scholarly work with regards to promotion for those in academics, and then CME credit for those who are interested in obtaining that. So a couple of good reasons to review for IFAR. And the other thing is it really keeps people up to date with the literature in their Mm -hmm. area. The reason probably that I will be sad not to continue to be editor-in-chief is because I really enjoy keeping up with the literature. And this is a great opportunity to do it for the associate editors and for the reviewers. And it sort of takes you to a different level in terms of your depth of knowledge in particular areas. That's very, very true. So, David, what do you think that the future looks like for IFAR and for publishing in general? In particular, there's this large push towards open access and and how that impacts our journal, how that impacts publishing peer-reviewed science in general. So, I'm not sure that I want to touch the open access question. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone scratches their heads over this issue. We can see the benefits of it. 
in terms of quick publication, in terms of the way that the articles can move through and sometimes even be reviewed post-publication in an ongoing fashion. But we're also all aware of the predator journals, of the fact that a significant amount of ludicrous papers actually get published. There have been examples of that in the literature, and that's done for profit. And the fact that there are often hidden fees involved in open access, so both known fees and also hidden fees. So it is a difficult area to know exactly how that's going to evolve over time. From the journal standpoint, it's obviously in a very strong position at this point in time. I think clearly will continue to thrive. I think it's going to need to change and become more interactive over time. I think that that's important. I think that it would be good to have some sort of online blog of reviews of the papers or discussion about the papers to increase that and sort of keep that energy going as time moves forward and to try to continue to use other media such as the interactive case learning format and the podcasts rather than just having it as a print journal. And who knows what the future holds in terms of other opportunities. I mean, I think it's very exciting. The video content is obviously important. And and the website is critically important. I was really delighted when we got the apps for the journal. And and I think that that helps people a lot so that you don't have to necessarily open up something in paper and can review it very quickly well before it comes out in print. Yeah, no, it's very true. I use the app quite a lot. I don't know how popular the app is, to be honest with you. Sometimes these things are very, very difficult to track, but I use the app almost daily, or of course, I'm more involved in the journal than most, but it's just a way for me to check to see what's going to be coming out in the future, and you can really get kind of a sneak peek of of what's coming out in the journal and, and keep really up to date. It's also interesting to me that I remember discussions 10 years ago that we would no longer have a print journal, you know, in 10 years. And yet, here we are, all the journals, for the most part, all of our major journals in in otolaryngology are still in print. And there seems to be a desire to continue them in print by a larger proportion of the readership than I think any of us had predicted a decade ago. What, what, What do you think that's about? I think people still like that hard copy. <laughs> I don't I don't know entirely why. I mean, I it's it's nice to have something to hold in your hand. I don't think that's as important now as it was. I mean, yeah. and the app to me, which is free, yeah. enables you to skim and and identify the abstracts even without subscribing to the journal, which I think is very nice. So you can learn a lot from that. And then, of course, if you do subscribe to actually be able to actually review the articles in depth, I think is very nice on your iPad or your iPhone. So I think that's a significant advance. It it will be interesting to see what happens over time in terms of the print journals and whether they do actually slowly disappear. That's a dynamic area for sure a lot of moving parts and a lot of different opinions some of them very strong but i'm not sure that any of them can really be backed up yet because 
as we watch the way that our, the consumer of these products behaves, it's, it's not necessarily as it's been predicted, which is interesting in and of itself. Well, David, I'm not sure what to say or, or how to say it, so I will just say thank you from all of us who have benefited from really your pioneering work from 35 years ago and then your ongoing leadership over the decades in the evolution of our specialty, in the evolution of the science of our specialty, and in shepherding our journal to a place, a very successful position already in our field, a respected journal. And as I sit back and and look at the journal metrics, I've been studying them, of course, over the last, well, many years, but last year in particular. And Gosh, I I don't I don't yet see a ceiling for this journal with regard to where it can go and how impactful it can be. So, Tim, I am absolutely delighted that you're going to be taking over as editor in chief, and I really mean that. I know that you're going to take this journal to the next level, and I would feel much less happy about handing over my baby if I knew that it wasn't going to you. But I feel confident that you're going to do a great job with it and that you're going to really think about how the journal can move forwards. If there's one thing I would like to see, I'd love to see some discussion on the articles in in some sort of blog format on the website over time. I think that would make it more interactive Mm -hmm. uh, for the younger generation and maybe an important learning tool. So I don't know how that will those sorts of things will be implemented, but I, I do know that you're thinking about it and you're going to take this journal to the next level. So it's going to be exciting. Thank you very much. Those are very kind words, and I appreciate it. I will certainly do my best to carry on your excellent work and, and help to bring our specialties science forward and the scientists who are really taking it to another level. As I look across the landscape of our entire field of otolaryngology, head and neck surgery, I really feel like some of the best science in the field, a large proportion of the best science in the field is coming from the rhinology, allergy, skull-based sector. Absolutely. And, And it's really gratifying to see how the research has grown within China and how important that has become to the journal and what we're publishing within the journal. I think that's just great. There really is a lot of good science coming out of China, and it's very nice to see that a large majority of it, of the subspecialty research, goes into IFAR. I I look forward to that and those connections continuing to grow over the years, those international connections. Indeed, it it is, in fact, the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology, and so our reach should be as such. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. A fascinating conversation for me just to hear about not only the history of the journal, but the history of, of our specialty, which is a young specialty, but how we have grown in 35 years is really truly amazing and in large part due to your leadership and your shepherding our specialty and our journal forward so thank you so much thanks Tim thank you for listening Scope It Out is a co-production of the International Forum of Allergy and Rhinology and Wiley all opinions in this podcast are those of Dr. Smith and his guests and do not necessarily reflect those of Wiley or of the sponsors